Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Thank you all very much for joining us. Uh, wishing you a very warm welcome to today's policy seminar. Uh, we are uh, launching today our 2023 Global Food Policy Report, which is on rethinking food crisis response. We know, of course, that climate change is triggering more extreme weather events. Often these are quite catastrophic, as we saw last year in Pakistan. At the same time, war is raging in Ukraine and many other conflicts are happening around the world and we have certainly seen the impact that an epidemic can have. Many countries are struggling today with their balance of payments. This is a very important topic being discussed right now in this town at the IMF World Bank spring meetings. So altogether, not surprisingly, there have been multiple calls for better linking humanitarian aid to longer term development needs, as well as for building resilience uh, to mitigate or perhaps altogether avert the impacts of food system shocks. The GFPR, which builds on our own IFPRI's, but also others' research, sets forth evidence-based recommendations on how we can heed these important calls. We are eager to hear from all of you today. Uh, those of you here in person, we have mics where you can ask your questions. And those of you joining us virtually, you can add your questions into the various platforms that you're joining us from. You can submit your questions on ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIfPre on Twitter. We will now start with an introduction and a high-level overview of the report's findings and recommendations from the two authors of the report's first chapter entitled The Road to Resilience. Uh, Johan Swinnen, the Director General of IFPRI and the Managing Director of the CGIR Systems Transformation Science Group will kick us off. He will then uh, pass on to Katrina Kosic, who is a Senior Research um, Fellow with the IFPRI's Poverty, Gender and Social Inclusion Unit. Katrina is also leading a brand new CGIR research initiative on fragility, conflict and migration. So I'm passing over to Yo, who in turn will pass on to Katrina. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, uh, Charlotte. And I have by far the easy job of, of our two speakers because uh, Katrina has to summarize the key findings of the report, which is just an impossible uh, task because we cover so much material in there. Uh, so I'm happy to leave that up to her. It was hard enough to get the chapter done, so let alone <laughs> summarize it in, in, in five minutes. Um, thanks very much. Thanks for everybody here. Thanks also for all our participants online. Um, and uh, let me thank a big thank you for all the authors of, of the chapters in the report. Uh, their names are listed in the report, and, and we'll have a final slide uh, today as well where they are listed on. This is, as you know, IFPRI's annual flagship report. I also think it's vintage IFPRI. Um, it shows the capacity and I think the relevance of the Institute and the work that we do. And the topic, as Charlotte already mentioned, could not be, could not be more relevant to today's challenges that the world is facing. This afternoon, for example, there's a very high level policy meeting at the World Bank IMF meetings that focuses on food security in these very challenging times and uh, challenging environments. I think in terms of IFRI's capacity, um, 
it's, it's reflected in the issues that we cover, uh, things related to social programs, public policy, more generally gender poverty issues, private sector engagement, value chain analysis, um, nutrition issues, migration, conflict, and um, so much more. Also in terms of the methods it brings together, our modeling capacity with work insights from the, all the surveys we do in many places around the world, and uh, a lot of new work, which are new data collection going on in the producing new indicators in terms of early warning systems, etc. Also, we have global issues and uh, country-level analyses in there. And uh, the last point, I think, in terms of our capacity is the partnership. The partnership both with within the countries, with people there, organizations there, institutions there in terms of analysis, data, uh, collection, etc. But also, I think, with the people or the organizations who are funding us and who are also interested in the research that we do. So I'm really pleased with our partners here today, particularly Dina Esposita from USAID, Usman Badian from Academia 20, uh, 2063, sorry Usman, and uh, uh, our colleagues from WFP, obviously, who are very important in this process and others. So I'm going to have to move on, but just an extra word of thanks to our colleagues, our IFRI colleagues from CPA, from the Communications and Public Affairs Department for delivering the report on time, getting it out, getting all the authors to re, uh, deliver, um, and then the organization today and all the external communication around it. I think they've done a fantastic job. All right, now I'm going to use four slides to kind of set the framework, if you want, of what we discussed today. I could have picked probably a hundred. I just picked those four because I think they are um, reflecting some of the key challenges that we need to face. Next slide, please. So this is, um, the first slide has two figures. Okay, one is on um, the, the right one for you, okay, is on uh, the prevalence and the undernourishment in the world today. These are the well-known FAO numbers. The key point there, okay, is that we have really seen a structure, or we're in the midst of a structural shift in hunger developments in the world. So we've had 25 years of major successes in reducing hunger in the world. That has stopped essentially in the middle of last decade, and we've seen a turnaround now. And so a key point there is this turnaround happened before COVID-19, before the Ukraine war, etc. Okay, so that's an important point to take into account. At the same time, we've had a number of uh, compounding crises taking place right now. I think the second slide here on uh, the left here for you is about, this is uh, from a report by uh, Derek Hedy and Kale Hirvonen. I think it summarizes very well the volatility which, has, uh, which is characterizing global markets, not just in food, but also in fertilizer, um, in markets over the past 25 years. So this is really the new normal. So the new normal is not, when we talked about the 2007 price increase, we talked about the shock, okay? Shock means that it's a deviation from the normal, which was stability, but there is no stability in the past 20 uh, years in this market. So that means we have to think very differently about food policy in general and development policy, I think. So we have to use this as, this is a standard, okay? So how do we deal with that? And that brings us immediately to things, um, uh, resilience framework. It also brings us to the point that we have to have policies which address short-run issues. At the same time, we are addressing medium-term and long-term issues. And that's very much at the heart of what we try to do. Next slide. This is, again, uh, illustrating the, so the panel here, the graph here, is um, most recent data tried to measure extreme weather events. 
And although there may be some measurement issues, I think in the first part of uh, last century, I think clearly what you see over the last uh, 15, 20 years, the number have picked up quite dramatically. And we've seen a number of these, and I'm sure you have another, uh, several cases that you know quite well actually reflected, which are reflected in the growing numbers of these. Okay? So this is also part of the world we are in today. And this has, of course, we have interactions of these things, of these weather events with conflict, with economic shocks, uh, etc. Next slide, please. And the last slide here, I think, is, is uh, for me, the first time I saw this, like uh, a year and a half ago when I asked some data on it, I was actually quite shocked on it. And I thought there were some measurement issues there. But what we see is that the number of um, forcibly displaced people, okay, mostly due to conflict, they can go from one rural area to another rural area, from the cities to the uh, countryside or vice versa or across borders, has increased very dramatically over the past decades, really. Okay? It was around 40 million people in the world, quite stable, actually, for the 20 years before, but since then it's gone up to 100. And so that means that we really have to take this very explicitly into account when we deal with food security problems in the world, I think. Uh, so in low and we know also that more generally than low and middle income countries and low and middle income households within countries are the ones who are most uh, suffering most from the problems that we're facing today are most challenged. And within uh, the overall group, we see very strong gender effects. And so new studies uh, indicate that the setback of gender equality is almost by 30 years. I mean, these are dramatic figures, I think, that we have to face. And so we have a, a chapter in the report which is focusing explicitly on these gender issues. Next slide, I'm going to go quickly through these because I uh, won't take up more time from Katrina. So I think the point here is that the call for effective crisis response is not new, but it's clearly increasingly urgent, increasingly relevant, I think. We do know a lot already, actually. And so the question is how to integrate it into a coherent uh, policy portfolio, strategic portfolio. And there, the third bullet point really is referred here to humanitarian development peace nexus. It's really the short run and the long run and the medium run from these different angles that have to come together. And this is also strongly integrated or a, 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 um, an issue, if you want, or a framework running through the various chapters of the report. Um, next slide, let me just skip this one because I think Katrina will follow, I already said about the timeliness. Next slide, please. So these are the seven chapters in the report. Uh, so the first one is a summary chapter by myself and Katrina. Then a chapter on early warning, we'll have a, a short uh, presentation on that, on humanitarian response anticipatory action, chapter three. Agri-food value chains, I think a very important chapter where they identify also the the lessons, the positive lessons we draw from COVID, where some of these, many of these value chains, both on the private sector and the public sector, have been more resilient than we anticipated. And we have to draw lessons that going forward. Um, safety nets and social protection, chapter five, gender and uh, equality in fragile and conflict affected settings is chapter six. And then the seventh uh, chapters on forced migration, and we have six regional chapters uh, coming after that. Katrina, I hope I haven't used up too much of your time, I think, but over to you. Thank you, Leo. <clears throat> Fantastic. Well, next slide, please. Thank you so much for setting this up, Yo. Um, so as Yo mentioned in this report, we're looking at um, two, corner, two cornerstones of effective crisis response. And the first of these we consider is effective governance and coordination. 
effective governance at all levels is critical for sustainable and responsive action. And in particular, when we look at anticipatory action, humanitarian programming, uh, social protection, and other programs, really having a, a public sector that is supporting government accountability and which is creating programs that are deployed well and that can be sustained is really critical for crisis response. At the same time, effective governance plays a really important role in ensuring that we have market uh, stability and ensuring that we have the incentives uh, through, through regulation um, and policies of governments in the private sector for having the types of investments we need from the private sector um, in order to be resilient to crises. Um, additionally, and there's another big benefit here of effective governance, and that is that it tends to promote trust and social cohesion, and this itself can help to thwart future crises um, and, and prevent conflicts from emerging in the first place. But amid all of this, coordination on many different levels is really, really critical here. We need coordination that's effective between the international, national, national, and local levels, actors at all of these levels pushing in the right directions in the same directions. And we also need that across sectors, the public sector, the private sector, amongst civil society, that there's uh, coordination that's effective. Additionally, the global so south and the global north need to coordinate and work together so that money is directed at the right problems and in an effective way. We know that policy forums can help build the type of consensus that we need for this coordination and effective governance. And action, hopefully through these forums, can be made to be grounded in specific evidence that we, that we know is promising uh, directions for investments. Next slide. Now, a second cornerstone of effective crisis response is sufficient and flexible funding. The events that Yo has uh, described of the past few years really highlight the need for crisis response funding to grow. At the same time, we have a lot of evidence emerging to tell us that we need to invest early. Investment in resilience and anticipatory action can mean that we reduce the future costs of humanitarian response. Now, we also, have that we, we also have to think about how to fund this. And there's a key strategy to transform food systems for sustainability and resilience, which is repurposing over $600 billion in global government uh, agricultural supports. So getting this applied to these problems of crises. Governments can also, they have a lot of capacity to shift private sector incentives and investment toward uh, crisis prevention. Um, through regulation um, and through other policies that can improve the incentives of the private sector. And finally, we know that development banks can play an important role in de-risking and crowding in investment in resilience uh, through bl blended finance and other mechanisms. Next slide, please. Now, a num the, the, this report is so rich. It's so rich in policy recommendations. I hope everyone will, will, will read these critically and think about how to put them into action. But I'd like to go through some of the key uh, highlights from um, several, of the, um, several of the key highlights from our six thematic chapters. First, turning to early warning, early action systems. These systems are really needed to better address the complexity of crisis. We know that with conflict events, with the rising scourge of climate change, it is essential that we are monitoring um, uh, what is happening and having timely response. So we need to fill monitoring and evaluation gaps. We need to do this before crises hit, 
while crises are ongoing and understand the aftermath of these crises. And we need to integrate existing systems as well that are often in parallel and disparate. We need to integrate them to ensure that policymakers are receiving clear and timely and also actionable warnings. Now, turning to anticipatory action frameworks, these are critical. As we mentioned, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. But they require monitoring data that will illuminate the risks and exposures and vulnerabilities that crises bring about. Um, they can hopefully mitigate crises at lower cost, and they can support longer-term development efforts. But behind them, what's needed is a robust governance environment, um, good public sector incentives, and these can improve um, the targeting of the program, and they can raise, raise the overall efficacy of the programs. Next slide, please. Now, our policy recommendations also talk about the incredible value of having re resilient agri-food system value chains. Businesses, we know, should be investing in improved and innovative tools like climate-smart agriculture. They should be investing in new forms of insurance. And we know that there's a role for government here as well. Government needs to create a business environment that will foster these types of innovations, that allow the private sector to address crises. And we need this pre-crisis and during crisis data collection to target assistance to crucial value chain nodes where that assistance can make the difference. Now, turning to responsive social protection systems, the report really highlights the incredible value of these systems, but we can't just do business as usual. Governments need highly adaptive, flexible, and inclusive social protection systems, and ones that are budgeted for crises, which we know are becoming increasingly common. We need to integrate shock responsive social protection with early warning and early action systems and humanitarian aid in order to ensure greater coherence. And we also need to explore new ways to cover costs. These might include climate or green financing, for example, and ways to reduce costs and deploy these programs more effectively. This could be using mobile payments or other innovations that are being explored in order to make social protection quicker and more effective. Next slide, please. Now we know, and Yo has highlighted, how crises put women at particular risk. And we know that empowering women in crises and, and thwarting this, this decline in gender equality we often see during crises is essential. And one way to do this is ensuring we're collecting data and improving the quality of gender disaggregated information on how women are faring before and during crises. Now this data is also important because to address and empower women amid crises, we need to create explicit, explicit gender targets in crisis response, and then we need to track progress on those targets. And so doing so is going to demand this really good gender disaggregated data. It's also important to increase women's political participation and amplify their voice and agency in public spaces, even beyond their households during crises. And finally, we need to respond to the problem of forced migration. Um, government should invest in infrastructure and should be designing policies that will expand the benefits of migration. Migration is an incredibly important livelihood strategy and ensuring that migration can occur where beneficial and that the problems associated with forced migration are addressed to benefit migrants themselves and host communities is essential. We also need innovative data collection to better understand and to address the root causes of forced migration. Next slide, please.
I'd really like to conclude here by thanking all of the authors. This was a tremendous effort. And, and it highlights at least three things I want to highlight here. Uh, number one, how well IFPRI researchers work together, including with our outposted staff, our regional and country offices, um, and their partners on the ground. Their partners on the ground being essential to make sure that we have inputs on in this report from all of these regions. Second, we have incredible partnerships from outside CGIAR, outside of IFPRI. And finally, we have a lot of collaboration here between IFPRI and other CGIR centers. And I think for a problem of this magnitude, that type of collaboration, that type of on-the-ground truthing is essential to ensure effective crisis response. Um, thank you so much. Thank you very much, uh, Yo and Katrina, for, for that overview. Um, a really terrific uh, putting everything up uh, up front, and now we are turning to a set of um, rapid-fire presentations focusing on four of the chapters. And it was a hard choice, but uh, <laughs> I think you'll agree that we uh, we have brought some of the uh, very important um, topics forward in these in these four chapters. But I certainly encourage all of you to look at the other chapters as well. Um, I'm going to introduce all of our rapid-fire presenters in a row, and then they will then pass the baton to each other. Our first speaker is um, Frédérique Grepp. She's an economist with the World Food Program, and let me echo Katrina's thanks to the WFP for joining us uh, in this report. Frédérique will speak to us on the chapter on food crisis risk monitoring, early warning for early action, a very important chapter on how perhaps we can rethink a little bit and how we can better integrate early warning systems um, for more um, uh, effective early warning. After that, we turn to Sikander Kurdi, a research fellow here with us at IFRI, um, working in our Egypt office and very active um, now on the crisis in Yemen. Um, she will talk to us uh, about Chapter 3, Crisis Resilience, Humanitarian Response, and Anticipatory Action. Uh, Sikandra, in turn, will then turn to Kale Hirvonen, another senior research fellow with us here at IFPRI. Kale is the author of Chapter 5, Social Protection, Adaptive Safety Nets for Crisis Recovery. And then last but not least, uh, we will hear from Manuel Hernandez, also a senior research fellow with us here at IFPRI, and one of the co-authors of the chapter on forced migration, fragility, resilience, and policy responses. Let me remind all of you in the audience to go ahead and continue um, submitting your questions on our various platforms. So over to you, uh, Frederike, and then thanks for passing the baton onwards. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity to present this chapter on food crisis risk monitoring, which is, oops, I cannot see the slides. Are you showing the slides? We're, we're teeing them up. There okay, we go. Perfect. Great. Um, so thanks for the opportunity to present this chapter. And it's a joint piece of work with Rob Voss, Arif Hussein, Peter Lederach, and Brendan Rice. And the endeavor was led by Rob Voss from IFRI. Next slide, please. So the chapter is about early warning, early action systems. And those are systems that provide alerts on potential food crises and inform decision makers. And here the really critical word is um, 
potential because a shock does not necessarily need to turn into a crisis or trigger a full-blown emergency. It really depends on the conditions in place and on the anticipatory action that we take. And this can greatly limit the potentially devastating consequences of a shock. Next slide, please. So I'm not going to try to summarize the chapter in five minutes, but I'll just pick three key points that we make in this chapter. It's basically key recommendations on how to increase the effectiveness of these systems. And that is the need for better integration between early warning systems for food security and those for agricultural markets, the need for more real-time monitoring, and the need for redefining famine criteria to make them work in today's contexts and notably in conflict settings. Next slide, please. So turning to the need for better integration, in this chapter, we basically look at two types of early warning systems. One type is those systems that monitor food security directly. And then the other type are agricultural market information systems, which focus on the supply and market conditions that could endanger food security. And these systems are not always very well linked. So if you think back last year, we saw a steep increase in international prices for basic staple foods and higher prices are on global markets, and higher prices generally mean lower access to food, so food security issues. But the question then is, how does the sharp increase in food prices on international markets translate into changes in food security? And is this price surge likely to translate into a sudden and substantial increase in food insecurity, which is a food crisis? And to answer these questions, you will have to answer the questions how global price shocks transmit to local context and what are the structural vulnerabilities that increase or mitigate their impact and once you have answers to these questions you can make the systems talk to each other and make the information that you get from agricultural market information systems more useful to within um, to issue food security um, warnings or warnings for impending changes in food security next slide please um, yeah, on the need for real-time monitoring, a problem in food security monitoring is that usually you have um, food security analyses based on assessment, on household assessments, once a year, sometimes a bit more frequent, but you have huge gaps between these analyses, and, um, and we don't always know what happens in between, but we do have the technologies at hand to get insights, and at WFP we started collecting um, food security indicators through a mobile data collection about a decade ago that has evolved into the, the hunger map. And today we um, um, collect remote data at the daily basis in 40 countries for um, food security indicators and complement these by predictive modeling for another 53 countries to get real-time information on the food security situation in many countries around the world. So the letter is the now casting and um, on the slide you see for the example of Haiti how useful this information can be. So the vertical bars indicate the IPC analyses with the different colors showing the population in the different phases and you see that there's a sharp deterioration between from 2021 to 2022 and if you now focus on the blue part the real-time monitoring you can see that this deterioration was already visible 74 days in advance. 
So we had here 10 weeks advanced uh, or time to put in place anticipatory action. And the next frontier here is the work on for forecasting, which is ongoing. Next slide, please. Um, a last point that I wanted to make is on the need for an actionable definition of famine. So the, the protocols that we currently have to determine whether famine is present, they were devised at a time when famine was, was mainly driven by slow onset emergencies, such as drought. So you had the time and opportunity to carry out large scale assessments and surveys. But today, conflict is one of the biggest causes of famine-like condition. And that doesn't give you the opportunity to carry out these surveys because often you have physical access for hours. So we need a definition of famine that's implementable in or famine criteria that are implementable in hours and not weeks to get to a common understanding of the severity of food crises. Over to Sikandra for the next rapid fire presentation. And thank you. Thank you, Frederica. Thank you, Frederica. Waiting. If this work. Nope. Okay. Otherwise, we'll just leave it off. We, we, okay. We have your slides up. Great. All right. Thank you. Um, okay. So I'm going to be talking about um, humanitarian response and anticipatory action in uh, approaches for crisis resilience. Next slide, please. So at the 2016 World Humanitarian Summit, there was this introduction of the concept of the humanitarian development peace nexus, um, which Katrina mentioned earlier in her presentation as well. Um, and so I wanted to talk a little bit about what that is and why it's important. The humanitarian response to crisis and disaster situations is grounded in principles of independence, neutrality and impartiality, and those reflect the risks of delivering aid in situations that are quite dangerous and unstable where normal local political authorities are unable and or unwilling to do so. But those principles together also with the emphasis on speed and life saving mean that aid is often delivered with less consideration for longer term development goals, such as economic growth, building human capital, sustainability, and with political goals, like building up capacity of local institutions. Next slide, please. So better evidence can help align humanitarian aid delivery with medium and long-term resilience building, what, showing what types of activities at the nexus are effective. If pre-researchers are major contributors to this small but growing body of rigorous evidence on what works in humanitarian and crisis contexts, while some of the same topics have been heavily studied in stable contexts, studying humanitarian contexts specifically is important because lessons from more stable places don't always carry over into settings where the project implementation might be a lot more challenging and beneficiaries face more frequent and severe shocks. Some of the key questions that IFPRI research is addressing at the HDP Nexus include how to make food distribution more nutritionally sensitive using supplemental food items to provide micronutrients, demonstrating the nutritional benefits of using crash transfer modalities for aid, 
studying how aid distribution impacts trust in local institutions, assessing the effectiveness of targeting of humanitarian aid and how it interacts with existing social protection systems, and evaluating the benefits of local procurement of commodities for emergency food distribution for local farmers and markets. Next slide, please. But what if instead of being organized on a tight timeline post-crisis, emergency responses could be planned ahead of time? This is the goal of the anticipatory action framework. Anticipatory action is an approach being piloted in multiple contexts that seeks to use humanitarian response resources more efficiently by pre-allocating them to be spent in ways that reduce the impact of anticipated disasters. In practice, this means using early warning tools to trigger a release of financial resources and also to trigger a predetermined emergency response. The graphic here illustrates the theory of how initiating actions to address a crisis after early warning signs are detected, but before the full weight of the shock is felt, reduces the peak humanitarian need compared to the traditional humanitarian response that can only be organized after the disaster has struck and actually tends to take quite a while in terms of logistical delays to actually reach people on the ground. While anticipatory action is growing in popularity as a pilot financing approach, uh, uh, World Bank, United Nations, IFRC, FAO, and probably others, impact assessment of this approach to show its effectiveness remains a major gap in advocating for the anticipatory action approach. And more generally, for these type of uh, HDP nexus type interventions for resilience building in uh, in crisis responses and humanitarian settings. The new CGIR research initiative led by Katrina on fragility, conflict and migration will be implementing a work program aiming to strengthen anticipatory action in complex crises and provide this type of guidance and, uh, for humanitarian programming. Over to Kelly. Hello, um, I can't see my slides. Um, Start to kind of slides. Can you put up my slides, please? Kelly, we're getting those up for you. Maybe you want to start with some uh, some of your remarks already. Sure. Thanks a lot. Uh, yeah, sorry about that. So yes, Chapter Five focuses on social protection during crisis. Uh, next slide, please. Um, as it's probably all, all well known uh, now that uh, social safety net programs, which are a form, form of social, uh, social protection program, uh, these types of programs that provide cash or in-kind transfers uh, to the poorest and most vulnerable households, 
they've really become a mainstream policy tool to address chronic poverty, food security across uh, low and middle income countries, but also in, in high income countries. Uh, uh, IFPRI research and other research have so shown that when these types of programs are carefully designed and also implemented, they do improve food security, reduce chronic poverty and build household assets. But uh, increasingly, uh, social protection programs are used as a platform uh, to address other types of uh, policy outcomes that we care about, nutrition, education, gender, and, and climate change adaptation. Next slide, please. So in this chapter, uh, we argue that uh, social protection can play a critical role in times of crisis. And as Joe uh, jo, uh, already introduced, uh, us to this, uh, we seem to be entering an era of increased turbulence with, with pandemics, global food price shocks, and, and climate change uh, effects becoming more and more visible. And uh, during crisis, uh, social safety net programs can offer protection through several channels. I'm just going to highlight two. First, uh, they can improve household resilience uh, or in communities resilience uh, by increasing, improving their capacity to deal with future shocks. Uh, and during or after, in the immediate aftermath of the shock, these timely and adequate cash or income transfers provide relief to affected households. Uh, in this chapter, we review evidence, uh, empirical evidence on this topic, and we find first that there's been a lot of re recent research just over the last two or three years sh showing exactly this, that uh, social protection do prog uh, programs do protect uh, household consumption, uh, nutrition outcomes, and so forth against droughts, floods, and other types of natural disasters, and also were affected during the pandemic. Next slide, please. Uh, there's also quite a bit of anecdotal evidence from uh, global and local crises over the past two, two decades, really, showing that uh, when, when there is a pre-existing social uh, protection program, uh, they come with delivery systems that are more agile and in delivering and, and targeting transfers uh, than, than new programs that are set up during a crisis. And this has led to this kind of increased interest in establishing adaptive or, or shock responsive social protection programs that expand uh, during a crisis and then contract afterwards. And, and in the chapter, we, we review very innovative examples uh, from Kenya and, and Ethiopia. But setting these types of uh, social protection programs requires major investments. We need this kind of early warning systems that have been discussed uh, by Frederike, uh, and, and, and we need unified targeting systems to, to improve targeting and avoid duplication across different types of programs. And then we need these appropriate risk financing instruments that Katrina was talking about, so that to make sure that there is indeed funding uh, when these crises uh, occur. Next slide, please. So in terms of policy recommendation, uh, so there's been an increase in the number of programs over the last two decades, uh, but there are some important coverage gaps uh, among poorest households, particularly in low-income countries, but also in urban areas across low- and middle-income countries. And we call for, the, for a shift to a more proactive approach to disasters by incorporating uh, shock-responsive designs to the existing social protection programs. But these types of adjustments are not uh, not three. So we need to, as Katrina also highlighted, strengthen domestic revenue systems, collection systems, and explore these new ways of financing social protection, uh, as Katrina also mentioned, these uh, green financing schemes uh, where appropriate. 
But of course, the long-term object, obje objective of, of these programs, social protection programs, is that uh, households uh, exit poverty and, 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 uh, and, and can lead their lives without uh, continued uh, support. And uh, available evidence uh, from recent evaluations suggests that uh, graduation model programs that uh, combine asset transfers and cash transfers with training can deliver uh, on meeting these objectives. Uh, and uh, an active area of, of ISPRI research is to, to identify versions of these programs that are scalable and can, can be actually incorporated into existing safety net programs. The current ones are quite uh, expensive and, and, and therefore there's a need to identify better or uh, more affordable versions of these programs. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, over to, to Manuel. Thank you, Kale. Thank you. So in, in this chapter, chapter seven, uh, we discussed together with my colleagues, Olivier Ecker, Peter Laderach, and Jean-Francois Maistad, um, uh, the causes, consequences, and policy responses to forced migration with a special attention to fragility and resilience. Next slide, please. Let me first point out some key migration facts. Um, the first one is that international migration has surged by 62% over the last two decades and a large share of international migrants originate from rural areas. The second one is that a large number of, uh, the number of refugees has doubled since the early 2000s, and most of them are hosted by low and middle income countries. Third, this is something that Joe pointed out, 80% of displaced people find themselves in areas of acute food insecurity and high malnutrition, and the pandemic has certainly worsened this situation. Fourth, an important share of people displaced by climate change are women who also face higher risks of violence. And fifth, forced migration may also result in irregular migration, that is, the movement of people outside the laws and regulations. Apprehensions, for example, at the US-Mexico border set a new record in 2022 and roughly tripled compared to 2019. Next slide, please. So why are people forced to migrate? The decision to migrate is generally complex, driven by a wide set of factors. Forced displacement in particular results from extreme weather events, armed conflict, criminal violence, and economic shocks, which are often interrelated, uh, multiplying their impact. Migration in this sense constitutes an important adaptation strategy with people seeking out better opportunities. Migration also requires financial resources and social networks. And often those who stay behind are the most vulnerable. Next slide, please. The, the socioeconomic consequences of forced migration are diverse, and the current evidence is not necessarily fully clear and should be analyzed across three dimensions. For migrants, migration may lead to higher incomes and improved livelihoods. For their families that stay behind, remittances can constitute an important source of income, and we were witness of this during the pandemic in Latin America, in Africa, and in Asia. But these positive effects may take some time to materialize. We also have to keep in mind that uh, several forced migrants experience extreme hardship in their journeys, and several of them may also lose their lives. 
Consenting communities, migration may put an upward pressure on wages due to the reduced workforce, and this is particularly the case of agricultural activities. And migration may also affect women's workload and empower. On hosting communities, in the short term, the local poor may face the greatest employment challenges, uh, particularly women, uh, due to the inflows of, of migrants. But in the long term, migrants can contribute positively to the local economic growth through their market interactions with their hosts. Next slide, please. In the chapter, we discuss several policy responses to attend forced migration. Some of them include, uh, first, uh, as a multidimensional phenomenon, we recommend broadening the scope of migration research, not only to better understand migration causes and consequences uh, in the short and long term, but also to develop better tailored policies that expand the positive effects and limit the negative ones, which may be context specific. In this line, we also need to accelerate the transition from humanitarian aid, which is critical in the short term to attend malnutrition, hunger, and food insecurity, to move on to development policy and better integrate refugees and other displaced people into hosting communities and local labor markets with a special attention to the needs of displaced women. We also need to align social protection and climate action objectives in a context where climate change and conflict may aggravate global humanitarian crisis and further increase forced migration. Lastly, we need to, we need to also address forcing mobility. That is the situation of people who are not able to relocate after a negative event or shock, which is a problem that has received little policy attention. Next slide, please. To conclude, we also stress out in the chapter that migration is an important adaptation strategy that can support livelihoods, build resilience, and protect against fragility and armed conflict. Thank you. Thank you very much to all of our rapid fire presenters for those very succinct and, and good overviews of your respective chapters on these important topics. We're now uh, turning to the part of the program where we hear from uh, a number of very distinguished guests who will provide us their perspectives on the findings and recommendations of the report from their own individual perspective, uh, their institutions' perspectives as well. So we are particularly delighted to have with us today uh, Dina Esposito. Uh, I don't think she needs much introduction. Um, she is the USAID Assistant to the Administrator for Resilience and Food Security, uh, the U.S. Feed the Future Deputy Coordinator for Development, as well, uh, very important for today's discussion, the Global Food Crisis Response Coordinator. Dina, we thank USAID for the excellent collaboration with IFPRI and the CGIR as a whole. And we also very much applaud the efforts of your organization on the important contributions you have made to both humanitarian and development support to countries in need across the globe. Um, Dina has graciously agreed to take just a couple of questions after her remarks. So uh, please uh, think about uh, questions you would like to ask her. And with that, I'd like to invite you to the podium. Thank you so much, Dina. Mm -hmm. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever, wherever you are, wherever you're listening from. I am really delighted to be here, both on a personal level and on a professional level. 
I started my career actually in the humanitarian response disaster relief world, um, initially in, the, in one of the early Somalia famine responses, took a U-turn into governance and peace building because of what Katarina said about the centrality of both the governance and conflict management to solving some of these crises um, or, or preventing them, and then found myself on the economic development side trying to deal with the root causes and some of the market system failures that we see uh, for global food insecurity. So whenever a report like this comes out, whenever people want to talk about the triple nexus or um, really doing business differently, I like to show up as, and I'm really here as a cheerleader and a champion to just really elevate this work and thank you and hope that some of the folks on the line will really begin to also get super interested and engaged on these really thorny, difficult issues. We've been working on them for a long time, but we need a lot of, of new ideas. Um, uh, so thank you to Charlotte. Um, it's really wonderful to be here, and uh, my congratulations to IFPRI on the launch of this 2023 Global Food Policy Report. I want to especially thank Dr. Yo Swinnon. His leadership, the technical excellence of this team have really helped decision makers around the world, including at USAID and across the U.S. government, to understand and navigate a complex set of global crises over these past four years. We've been working very closely with you. We're here today a little uh, bit on from the one-year um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which compounded an already really, really difficult global food security situation, as Dr. Swinnon mentioned. And while we're seeing some alleviation in global supply challenges and the decline of stabilization or stabilization of prices, we're not out of the woods yet. We're uncertain as to how much area was successfully planted in parts of Africa this season, for example. And while global food prices have declined, supplies remain tight, elevating the risk of additional price shocks. The Horn of Africa, Yemen, Afghanistan, other parts of the world are still acutely hungry, with some places, like parts of Somalia, facing the potential of famine again in the coming months. Extreme weather events are pretty much a certainty. We see the threat of an El Nino on the horizon, which could bring further extreme weather to already fragile and extremely food insecure places. The Black Sea Grain Initiative has made a vital difference, but the constant uncertainty over extensions and its uneven implementation means its future is uncertain. In, in essence, we know at this point that global shocks are going to be the new normal. It's for this very reason that analysis like IFPRI's food policy report on rethinking global food crisis responses is so critical. This kind of deep think, evidence-based research enables policymakers and practitioners alike to think anew and think with fresh eyes, look with fresh eyes at really long-standing and evolving, ever-evolving challenges. As, as you heard, I wear several hats at AID. One is as the Deputy Coordinator for Development for Feed the Future, which is the U.S. government, whole of government global hunger initiative. It has three objectives, driving inclusive agricultural-led growth, building more resilient people and systems, the focus of the 2023 report, and improving nutrition, especially for women and girls. Now, since its inception more than a decade ago, we've actually made some pretty impressive progress. We've reached some 30 million people. Our data tells us that extreme poverty, hunger, and malnutrition, child stunting, all declined by 20 to 25 percent in the areas where we worked, while wi children's diets and women's empowerment both improved. But clearly, the pace and severity of shocks and stresses that keep coming and will continue to come means that progress so far continues 
to be outpaced by setbacks. And you see that in the trends that Dr. Swinon showed you. So your report comes at a time, as in 2008, 2009, when the U.S. is investing more deeply and, and challenging others to invest more deeply and to think differently about how we can build the resilience of our global food systems as well as respond to the terrible humanitarian consequences of the current shocks and stresses that we're facing. So your report's helping us thinking how to bring these ideas together. Now, last year, thanks to the support of the U.S. Congress, the U.S. government was not only able to provide more than $10 billion in humanitarian assistance, but also received an additional $1 billion to undertake development investments in response to the global food emergency, essentially doubling the Feed the Future budget. I think this reflects a really, really important shift, and I've been around government a long time, and I can't think of another moment when development funds were allocated in this way in, in response to a crisis. And I think um, it's that kind of shift that we need to continue to advance and think about how we bring our, our different tools together. Now, many of the interventions that we're doing with these additional resources push into some of the areas that your report calls on us to think more deeply about, from shock responses, social safety nets in places like Ethiopia and Kenya, to climate-smart agricultural investments all across our Feed the Future target countries, index-based insurance to smallholder farmers, to more flexible relief and development funding mechanisms, the holy grail, <laughs> that allow us to pivot and adapt as contexts change. So we are emphasizing to our country teams the need for evidence-based decision-making, harnessing new technologies, and squaring, squarely centering risk in our designs, providing our missions with the tools to do this. In the old days, we used to assume away risk. Oh, we'll assume there's no drought. We'll assume there's no shock, and we're going to have this great uh, development result. Now we have to anticipate it and incorporate it into our development designs. But we know we can do more and do better, and that's why the strong partnerships, like the one we have with IFPRI, are vital. Your research and analysis has served as key reference points for Feed the Future, both at the inception of it during the 2008-2009 global food crisis, during important reflection points like when we refreshed the global food security strategy for the United States government just two years ago, and most recently as we developed early responses, food security responses, to COVID-19, the pandemic, and the food, fuel, and fertilizer price crises accelerated by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The recommendations in your new report su suggest some important new avenues to think about, um, as well as reinforce some of the ideas we're already working on, from promoting intra-regional trade and bolstering investment in customized, highly specific climate-resilient agriculture to strengthening early warning and social protection systems and addressing gaps in monitoring, evaluation, and impact assessment so that collectively we're doing more to anticipate first and foremost, prepare for, and then, and, and then respond to crises. We're also really pleased that the report focuses so much on gender equity and women's empowerment. We know that women and girls suffer disproportionately when crises occur, and their leadership is a key part of the solution set. We also know from a forthcoming report, which will be launched in North America next week um, from FAO, that we are not moving the needle as much as we should, and we have to try new things, including tackling difficult social and cultural norms that prevent women from accessing the resources and playing the leadership role we all know they need to, to make. 
our administrator has announced USAID's commitment to doubling our investments in gender equity, and your report serves as a critical resource for understanding how we can rise to this occasion, and we're going to be making new announcements soon reg with regard to deeper emphasis on gender equity and women's empowerment in our, in our Feed the Future portfolio. Your recommendations also align very well with the broader approach that USAID is taking to uh, systems thinking, strengthening resilience across sectors and systems which will be reflected in our forthcoming revised resilience policy. Ultimately, to, to meet today's crises and the ones on the horizon, we know we need to exponentially increase the pace of change rather than being satisfied with incremental progress. Stronger and deeper partnerships will be at the heart of making this happen between public and private sectors, policymakers and scientists, and civil society and communities. We're all going to need to continue to engage in this conversation and work more closely together. So we look forward to our continued partnership with IFPRI. And again, thank you for the opportunity to join you today and my enthusiastic congratulations on the launch of this year's report. Thank you very much, Dina. We have a question uh, that comes to us from Nairobi, um, from Shadrach Agaki, and it's a perfect question for you. Um, <laughs> in one of the recommendations, effective governance and coordination has been mentioned as critical. However, governance has been synonymous to government, which is not always mm. true. How can other stakeholders, such as the private sector, be more effectively involved? Great. Um, wow, there's so much in there we could <laughs> spend a long time talking about. Um, you know, when I was working on the um, resilient food security activities funded through our Relief Bureau, we put governance and um, conflict-sensitive approaches as sort of the under underlying linchpin to effectively delivering sustained um, reductions in food insecurity around the world. And we really thought, because that relief work was happening in in uh, a lot of conflict settings. We really thought of governance with a small g, if you will. It's a lot about having to work at the community level. What are the effective local governance institutions, whether they be formal or informal, that are absolutely vital to um, uh, social cohesion, uh, improve market access, collaboration and cooperation across uh, communities that sometimes aren't speaking to each other but find they have an awful lot of common ground when you bring them together. Um, with regard to the private sector, they obviously play a critical role, um, and I think um, whether you're talking about, again, like U.S. private sector, they need to make known what are the incentives they need to engage in these areas. Um, we are, um, I'm familiar with some work in northeast Nigeria, and we were uh, really sort of, people were challenging us in, in this incredible emergency Boko Haram. Uh, affected areas that the private sector wouldn't possibly be interested, but you know the world, uh, the people are making money. Right, everybody's working. There is a private sector, and you can absolutely, if you put your mind to it, engage the private sector and figure out what are the incentives they need. How can relief and development practitioners de-risk those investments and work harder? But raising your voices, I would say, raising private sector voices that you're part of the solution, and that if we um, whether it be here in the United States on the U.S. Congress to say we're actually part of the solution, but we're not going to take your, you know, your relief dollars. Those are NGO. We have a profit motive, and we want to work with uh, development practitioners who want to go to these areas that are food insecure and conflict affected. I think we can make that case much more strongly than we have. 
Excellent. Can we do one more question? Sure. Um, this actually comes from the NGO sector. There's a question from Lisa Kunin Aswa from Catholic Relief Services. And she's inquiring about what are the USAID mechanisms um, to support inclusion of anticipatory action in medium-term recovery and resilience as part of humanitarian response? Oh, gosh. Lisa. <laughs> Hi, Lisa. You're asking me a very difficult question, and I will give you a very inadequate answer. Um, I think that a lot of the work that Catholic Relief Services and others do with resilient food security activities um, there is, of course, as you know, the opportunity to modify awards to respond when we see that the crises are coming um, and that we can do more to use these development and relief platforms to get ahead of the crisis. I think AID's uh, procurement mechanisms continue to be a little bit unwieldy and make that a big challenge, so I can't tell you that we've absolutely cracked the nut. Certainly the Famine Early Warning System Network is absolutely critical to triggering early action in the United States relief community, um, and we, um, we need to use that to really uh, forward fund, if you will, because we know, actually, when the crops are going to fit. We have six to eight months advance notice um, when we, we engage on a, you know, on a monthly basis, basis with FuseNet, who can give us pretty good projections about what's coming down the line. Um, so I think that those are some of the things that we have available to us, but I, um, uh, as well as the uh, disaster risk reduction portfolio that's led by our Bureau for Humanitarian Assistance, which is has some elements of that. Uh, but there's certainly more work that we could do in that regard. Thank you, Dina, for all your comments and uh, responding to, to those questions. Um, before we proceed to the next panelist, let me remind you again that you can continue submitting questions. We're getting some great ones already. Um, please do so on all of your various platforms. We'll be coming to the Q&A, uh, the, 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 the broader Q&A portion of this event soon. It's now my pleasure to turn to Sachin Chaturvedi. Um, who's, who serves as the Director General for Research and Information System in Developing Countries, RIS. This is the leading uh, Indian think tank on the study of international relations, focusing on international trade, development finance, South-South cooperation. Um, Professor Chattavedi is presently serving as the chairperson of the T20, so T20 is the think tank uh, 20 uh, task force which feeds into the G20. The task force is on life, resilience, and values for well-being. And of course, in this capacity, he's very well suited to speak to us today about the report and how the G20 is looking at, um, at crisis response and building uh, crisis resilience. Thank you very much for being with us, uh, Sachin. Over to you. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Let me at the outset uh, congratulate uh, IFPRI for this very interesting and very relevant, uh, very timely report uh, uh, focusing on rethinking food crisis responses. And I must uh, congratulate uh, uh, Dr. John Sarin for his leadership and uh, making this report uh, in this record time that uh, it has come in. I also must thank uh, our colleagues who presented uh, uh, the uh, rapid fire round, which was quite useful and I think quite uh, uh, exciting. Uh, as the uh, Indian G20 presidency is moving forward, this report captures several areas 
which are of great significance and I think uh, uh, extremely relevant for us to go forward the uh, food crisis monitoring and uh, and crisis uh, resilience, bringing in uh, agri-food value chains across these uh, uh, three chapters, I think are quite uh, relevant from the report. Uh, uh, in uh, Indian G20 presidency, there are three different areas where uh, the relevance of uh, report is extremely high. The agricultural working group of the G20, and uh, thanks to Indonesia for getting the working group on disaster risk reduction uh, constituted and launched last year, I think is playing an extremely important role, uh, not only for uh, focusing attention of the G20 countries, but also for some of the initiatives like the Tokyo Nutrition uh, for Growth uh, uh, and for G with the $27 billion initiative. And that, I think, is uh, absolutely essential and important for us uh, as we go forward. The report very rightly emphasizes on uh, uh, on evidence-based policy making, uh, not only in terms of uh, reducing the impact uh, that a crisis may have, but also in terms of uh, uh, preparing ourselves uh, uh, to reduce the devastating impact of uh, a crisis that we come across. So that I think is uh, uh, absolutely important. The other point that I, I think uh, uh, we should consider is in terms of the disaster risk reduction working group uh, that in India is focusing on climate change, uh, uh, disaster risk reduction, and SDG. That triangle, I think, is uh, absolutely important for us, and, and the report uh, uh, does refer to uh, uh, bringing in SDGs, climate change, and disaster risk reduction all three together, and that I think is uh, uh, important in terms of how uh, emerging economies and traditional economies are, are focusing on the dimensions that are needed, both by collating uh, best practices in how G20 can actually uh, uh, collaborate. The agriculture working group uh, is focusing more in terms of uh, sustainable agriculture with the climate smart approach, bringing in uh, inclusive agriculture value chain, which this uh, report has a full chapter on, and also uh, digitalization uh, for agriculture transformation. So that, uh, I think, is important. And within that, the idea is to focus on uh, increasing investments in agriculture research, encouraging uh, public-private partnership, and also trying to see how this resilience may uh, come in from uh, uh, several of these quarters. So I think uh, the report's uh, uh, setting of stage in terms of how the agriculture scientists forthcoming meeting within the agriculture working group is going to address uh, key issues within the disaster resilience systems that we are talking about. Last point that I want to make is in terms of uh, uh, the uh, uh, close working that uh, the, the IFPRI report uh, provides is in terms of disaster risk reduction, the agriculture losses that we are having, and the role uh, that philanthropic organizations and bilateral donors may play. And that, I think, uh, would be extremely important given the kind of conflicts, disasters that are listed in the report. So uh, overall, I find the report quite interesting and extremely useful uh, for the ongoing policy deliberations, both in the G20 presidency, but also uh, uh, as we all are grappling with the uh, uh, SDG2 uh, in several different countries. Thank you.
Thank you very much, uh, Sachin, for that insight in how the G20 is looking at this uh, complex set of issues. Um, last but not least, we turn to Usman Badian, who is the executive chairperson and acting managing director of Academia 2063, a very important partner of IFCRI and a very important voice on uh, policy issues in Africa. Academia 2063 provides state-of-the-art technical capacities to support the efforts um, by member states of the African Union to achieve the goals of the Agenda 2063 of transforming national economies to boost growth and prosperity. Thank you for joining us, Usman, and giving us your reflection um, from the very large, admittedly, perspective of Sub-Saharan Africa. We could probably have 54 different presentations uh, from you, but uh, thank you for giving us that, that big picture response from, from Africa. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Um, um, this is uh, honor, uh, and a pleasure for me uh, to, to join you. Uh, if this, of course, uh, has been and will always be a big part of me, uh, personally and professionally. So thank you for the opportunity uh, to, to join you and for a great report, uh, again, uh, as I've always been. So it touches on all key issues that are relevant uh, to uh, make sure that uh, we can handle shocks and at least uh, do something about them uh, when they happen. Uh, what I would like to emphasize here, which is in the report, uh, in so many different parts of the report, is the concept of operational readiness at country and community levels, which all will be very well informed by what is in this finding, in this report. But that's where we need to bring all these great findings to that level so that it can help us um, get things done when shocks arrive or even before the shocks are there. Uh, and operational readiness at country and community levels means the ability to act effectively and positively change the outcomes uh, that will uh, uh, result from crises and shocks when they do happen. And that requires knowledge and means to act. And a lot of it is already in this report, but knowledge and means to act, meaning what to do, when, where and how, not just during crisis, but during normal times before the crisis hits. The approach that we're pursuing at Academia 2063 and working uh, on with our collaborators and partners across the African continent uh, is based on one principle, that it is no longer normal, nor is it acceptable that shocks, which we know happen all the time, do lead to massive suffering and long-lasting damages. We can live with shocks in a way that we can avoid those two outcomes. And we are using two principles, uh, sorry, one principle and two pillars uh, that we're trying to really use as guidance for the strategy and the approaches to dealing with uh, shocks and resilience across the continent. Uh, and all of those, the principle and the two pillars are very well informed by this, by this report. Um, the uh, uh, principle, I just talked about it, shocks are normal, but they should not lead to massive suffering and long lasting damages. The two pillars, and remember I said we need to know what to do, when, where, and how, already in normal times before crisis come. 
So how can we get countries and community to the level, to a place where they can do that? And we're learning from what's happening around us. We're driving, drawing lessons from uh, things that may not be uh, observable across Africa, but just can illustrate where African countries need to be. One of them is what we call the snow plow principle. We all know that in the communities of the north, they know before the snow falls exactly where to position the snow plows because they understand the topography and the infrastructure and everything around the cities. That's where we need to be. The Sinoprao principles in us in Africa dealing with shocks means that we need a granular understanding of the patterns and the drivers of community level vulnerability. Those include the patterns of poverty, malnutrition, access to services, chronic diseases, exclusion, empowerment, a lot of the things that you already have in here. We need to understand at the granular level, at the community level, how this is affecting uh, vulnerability to these shocks. Once you do that, uh, then you can act, you can plan, and you can implement during crisis. We're trying to advance that principle, just like a municipality will know where to position the snowplow. We are developing a composite index of vulnerability, and we piloted that during COVID, that allows us to have a detailed knowledge of the priority vulnerable nutrient deficient communities that allowed us to plan and design impactful interventions during crisis, and that allows also in normal times to plan and implement investment. The thermometer principle is the last one I will talk about here, is that when we go to a doctor's office, all of us, we know, the first thing they do is to take our thermometer, our temperature. The temperature is just a casual indicator for what's going on with our body, whether it's a viral infection, bacterial infections, or uh, other things. The temperature shows the status of wellness of our body. Can we have such an indicator, a metric that allow us to know the status of the community? But also, the doctor doesn't look at the temperature just to know what's wrong with us. But the temperature is monitorable, changes quickly can let us know whether we're changing things, whether our patient is getting better. So we're working with a metric that allow African countries during normal times to measure the livelihood status of communities, but also during shocks to know whether they're doing the right things. Things are changing. We're using micronutrients as a quasi gap. We're tracking currently dozen micronutrients across 15 countries for now. And you can, with that, combined with the vulnerability mapping, know exactly which communities are hurting already in normal times and what are the drivers of that. And you have an indicator you can track to plan and measure policies during normal times. Are your pricing policy working right? Are your income transfer policy working right? Is trade environment working right? Are the people changing in terms of their resilience, their leverage status? And when crisis happens and you intervene, you know what type of interventions. Is it a price instrument? Is it an income instrument? Is it in kind? When you're designing safety nets uh, programs, you know exactly the entry points and you can measure in real time how things are changing uh, in these different communities. So a lot of what is in this report will help establish exactly that, uh, provided we have the right localization and the right conceptualization. But it's very rich as usual, and I do very much look forward to working with our colleague at IFPRI to advance these principles in Africa to get us to operational readiness. It's really the key word, the capability to act and to change things on the ground during normal times and when crashes happen. Thank you very much.
Thank you very much, uh, Uzban, for your comments. Uh, we're now coming to the Q&A session of our event, and I would like to invite Yo and Katrina to join us up front and all of our virtual speakers to put on their cameras and, and join us uh, on screen. Um, Frederica, we're going to kick off with a question for you. Um, the chapter um, also included a call for a better explanation to policymakers about the differences or, or a better integration of the different systems that measure, on the one hand, chronic food insecurity and, on the other hand, acute food insecurity. Could you speak a little bit about how um, policymakers can make more sense of these figures and whether uh, acute food insecurities figures actually also look at the underlying chronic food insecurity? Okay, thank you. Yeah, I mean, of course, when you look at food insecurity, there are lots of different numbers around at the same time, which can create confusion for policymakers and everybody else, but for decision makers, and that would hamper action. And um, so, first of all, I would say that the chapter is, of course, more focused on acute food insecurity, because that's what the early warning systems look at. If you look at chronic food insecurity, it's what we call the people that go to bed hungry every every night, and that's more um, like measured in three-year averages, and it's more a, a slow-changing condition. But as we saw in your slides at the very beginning, there also there we've seen the steep rise, and um, even in terms of acute food insecurity itself, there are different numbers around, and that. Um, that's also one of the, the calls that the chapter makes is that we should try to expand the consensus-based IPC analysis because currently the difference in numbers that we have for acute food insecurity only is mainly due to a difference in the set of countries covered. So at WFP we look at all countries where we have food assistance operations and that gets us to the number of currently 345 million and then in the global report on food crisis that that considers considers usually a subset of countries, which leads you to a lower number. But in the end, it's the same data and information that we look at. It's just a different set. And then, um, in terms of chronic and acute, they are of course closely related. So wherever um, you have chronic insecurity, that sets the stage in terms of vulnerabilities. Um, when so when a shock comes, those are the people who are most likely then going to fall into or be pushed into acute food insecurity, which is like acute livelihoods and life-threatening conditions versus a chronic food insecurity is measured through the prevalence of undernourishment, usually uh, the FAO indicator. Thanks very much, Frederica. Um, Yo, there was a question earlier to Dina about the role of the private sector. And we, of course, have an important chapter in the GFPR, which looks at value chains. Could you maybe just reiterate here some of the key um, key enabling environment uh, priorities for governments to ensure uh, healthy value chains, also in times of crisis? Okay, thanks very much, Charlotte. And so the um, you know, when we think about it, it's clear now that we have, I mean, all the work in the CGR and the TIFPRI, and I think the way organization broadly approach it, 
is really from a food systems approach, right? Because food systems includes everything which goes on the input supply system to the farms, the fertilizer, the seeds, etc., finance, but all the way to the consumer. And then if you look the dollars, if you think about the dollar which is spent by a consumer, how much is going to, uh, to the producer, it's about, in rich countries, about 5 to 10%. But even new estimates say that in low and middle income countries, the average is around 30%, okay? Which means that 70% of all the finance there is going to the non-farm sector, even in lower and middle income countries. And so, you know, I mean, it's not, I mean, you have farmers markets and in villages, uh, a lot of farmers uh, household produce their own food or they buy it in the village market. But most of the food in the world, including for poor people, is growing through markets and to trading system and to processing and to retailers. So that means if they're not part of the solution, you are just not going to solve the problem. And so I, I think Dina made it very clear, they have to be part of the solution. You cannot just try to solve this thing without them involved. And uh, so I think it, it's extremely important that they are part of that. And part of it is, uh, as we, I mean, we know a lot about this thing. I mean, having the <coughs> just having the framework right that these businesses can operate is extremely important. And these are boring recommendations, but they are oh so important for them. On the other hand, uh, so why a lot of technology is also for climate change, but it also implies for the, the, the resilience issues or practices on management, what people do and companies do are there, they're just not used because either people don't know about it or people know about it, but it's too risky for them. So you need an insurance system somehow built in or they know about it and they want to use it. They just don't have the finance to buy it or bring it on board. So you have to deal with all these three elements to make the whole system work. Thanks very much, Yo. Um, our in-person audience is very welcome to ask questions as well. We have a mic over here on the right. Um, but let me uh, first go to another question um, from our online audience. So Joe um, from Alive and Thrive is asking, and I think this is a really interesting question for a research organization such as IFPRI, is there an action agenda based on the report for advocates? Um, I think we should develop that. Uh, <laughs> and I'm going to actually turn to Katrina to give us her thoughts on that. And maybe you could put the particular angle of gender here, because gender is such an overriding aspect of the report. We also, of course, have the chapter on gender. So maybe you can take this action agenda idea um, forward with the important topic of gender. Fantastic. Well, thank you for the question, um, and uh, I, I absolutely, I think that is that is why we're here. We're hoping to to push this into an action agenda, and we feel like the report has already highlighted a lot of the existing research um, done by the CGIR, especially done by IFPRI researchers here today, um, but also the research gaps, because we know there are, there are many, and that we need to push forward in, in, in these areas. So that's definitely something we're taking up in IFPRI, we're taking up in the CGIR, um, I feel like on the gender angle in particular, uh, all of the calls we're hearing for data collection, tracking, targeting, uh, confirming our progress and, and understanding and anticipating, anticipating shocks is especially critical when we look at gender because we know in crisis responses when you're acting rapidly, you're trying to put out huge fires, the attention to some of these subtle issues of normative issues that, that massively impact the gendered effects of a, of a response to shocks, often those don't get due attention in times of crisis. We need to understand how we can plan for 
ensuring women's gender equality um, and women's empowerment are not compromised amid crises due to the crises or due to unintended impacts of crisis response. Uh, so I think that that, that anticipation, that uh, pre-planning is especially essential in this area. And I will say uh, that we're doing a lot of exciting work on fragility, conflict, and migration um, that IFPRI is leading and that the CGR is leading right now. And, and we think we have a lot to say about the political economy environment, um, the normative environment, and the coordination required in order to have effective crisis response. Thank you. Thanks very much, Katrina. Um, a question here, the, the questioner remains anonymous. Um, I'm gonna direct this one to you, Sikandra. Um, what is the food security opportunity cost for maintaining resource pools for crisis triggers that might not occur? What is the right balance? Yeah, so that's a, that's a really excellent question. Um, I'm not sure that I have a, a perfect answer for it. Um, part of it is that there are kind of multiple crises going on worldwide. Um, so when I mentioned um, some of the institutional innovations um, in terms of financing, a lot of these are being done by international NGOs. Um, like a World Bank um, IDA window or um, FAO. So um, to that extent, they're able to um, kind of uh, pool risk um, across countries globally. Um, but it's, uh, I, I think it's a good question and, and it's something that um, needs to be uh, a bit struggled with even at an individual level. I know there's been uh, discussions um, with Yemen, for example, saying, okay, is it, we know that there's a lot of hunger in Yemen already. There are people who are still food insecure, but should we keep something back in case there's a famine? Um, so it is a, it's a very good question and it's a difficult one and it's something that's, that's being kind of actively discussed now um, at different levels. Great, let me ask you one follow-on question that comes from Siobhan Shah um, from the US. Uh, asking whether anticipatory action might in some instances include uh, providing off the grid agricultural food growing um, kits that can be deployed and employed uh, quickly and easily by people on the ground, getting the region back to growing their own food within weeks or months of the crisis. How could something like this actually be orchestrated? Yeah, no, this is this is also a great question. I'm uh, again not sure that I have a full response. Um, the anticipatory action um, uh, terminology has been mostly used up until now um, to refer to these triggers for financing um, and predetermined plans. So it's it's very much about kind of making, uh, having that financing mechanism that, that gets triggered. Um, but there is this broader conception of anticipatory action where it's, as Katrina mentioned, it's the whole idea of the ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Um, and in that sense, I think there's a much broader um, field of uh, interventions that um, can all be considered as uh, types of anticipatory action. Thank you very much, Sikandra. So we've come to the end of our uh, seminar. Let me uh, make a few points here. First of all, um, we invite you to peruse the report. There is a synopsis. Um, we have a very nice website that is now up and running on the report. It includes videos of all of the uh, uh, presenting the, the key findings of the, the chapters. 
We haven't spent much time on the regional chapters of the report. Um, those are also featured in the report, and we will now, after this global launch, move to a series of GFPR events at the region and country level. So stay tuned um, for updates on those meetings. Um, I now take this opportunity to thank all of our presenters um, uh, for their really, really succinct and important contributions to this important topic. Our external uh, commentators really appreciate you being here with us today and wishing all of you um, around the world uh, joining us virtually a very good rest of your day um, or evening. And thank you very much for our in-person audience with us today. We are back uh, in having these hybrid events. And let me uh, pass the mic quickly to Yo for some final closing remarks from him. Um, thank you. I didn't know I had to give closing remarks. So, uh, <laughs> <A final> greeting. <laughs> yeah. No, I just uh, my fine. I mean, it's clear that this is an extremely important topic. It's also one which is, uh, at the same time, I think, kind of obvious and hard, okay? And these are, I mean, everybody now know, yeah, you know, you have to deal with, with acute problems and you have to deal with structural problems. And, uh, but turning that into, so that's the easy part, right? So turning that into really a concrete action agenda, actual, the, the things that you need to do, who you have to bring on board and all these things, that's really difficult, okay? And I really hope that this report can make a contribution to making that more concrete, to provide suggestions, ideas, and actionable, uh, an actionable agenda uh, for everybody who's interested, who's engaged, and who has to make decisions and can make a change, I think. And if we can do that, then that's our job, okay? And I think we, um, I, having gone through to read all, uh, all the chapters in the report, and there's some really good material in there, and I also just want to thank everybody for the contributions they've made, and again for the, um, Katrina for basically trying to bring it all together in, in the introduction, and, and uh, especially for the communications department, again, for the amazing job they've done in getting this out on time and organizing the event today. So back to you, if you still have. Thanks very much to our audience. Uh, take good care. Thank you.